Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Going Off Track. Oh yeah, welcome. Glad to be here. Yes, me and Brad here doing some intros at Brad's place. Um, Benny and Steven probably doing some parenting somewhere. Yeah, probably. They're good parents, both of them. Yes, very responsible parents. <sighs> you see the frogs behind you? Yeah, Brad. Have some frogs. What's the story with these? I'm wondering since your microphone is kind of pointed right at them, if any of the like noises are coming through. Do they do they make any noise ever? If you they're such little pigs that if you go hold your hand like over them over the tank, they'll jump out, or at least the big fat one will jump out and try to eat food out of your hand. No way. Yeah, these are like water frogs. These are aquatic frogs. Whoa. Like kids have. Here, you want to see? Watch this. So there's these frogs are swimming around. Brad's got his hand over the tank. And yeah, <laughs> this frog is swimming and jumping out of the water. <laughs> he'll like, he'll, he'll wow. hit your hand, he'll hit your fingers. You can try it after. after. I definitely will try it. I'll take a video and, and uh, we'll send it to our fans. Yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of exclusive content you're going to be getting. Oh, yeah. Exclusive content. Hopefully, we'll get it together and uh, give you guys something who've been donating Venmo and otherwise. Today on the podcast, Roger, very very exciting podcast. Um, been trying to set this one up for a while. We have Roger Murray, uh, the singer for New York hardcore, legendary New York hardcore band Agnostic Front. Um, he has a new book out. Um, it's the number one bestseller in punk musician biographies on Amazon. It is called My Riot: Agnostic Front, Grit, Guts, and Glory. Um, Roger Murray wrote it with John Wiederhorn and. Uh, I've read it. It's an incredible book, an incredible story. Um, you know, Roger, Roger's little brother is Freddie from Madball, who's also been on the podcast years ago. But yeah, Roger grew up in Cuba, ended up kind of in New York in the 80s, sort of like as the hardcore scene was just starting out. As you can imagine, it was a super dangerous, violent place. <laughs> he takes us through the whole history of the band, uh, and his own personal history, uh, his ended up, you know, trying to support his family, ended up in prison for a while. He gets very into that. We talk about that in the podcast. And he seems to be doing great now. He's, you know, has like a family, lives in Arizona. He's writing a book. He wrote this amazing book. Still, you know, We're both jealous of that. Yes. <laughs> still does music. Um, yeah, Agnostic Front still does stuff. Um, 
And yeah, he's he's like a hardcore legend. Yeah, he's royalty in New York. Yes, and it was a super super friendly guy. Yeah. So thank you to um, to Jenny uh, for setting this up and uh, to Pulse Music for letting us Pulse record. Music letting us do it and Michael Crowland for um, for helping out as well. And uh, yeah, let's just get into it. Uh, here is this podcast. I think everyone was at this one, right? Yeah, we'd like a full house. Oh yeah, the whole crew. Yep. Whole crew there for Roger Murray. Everyone came out. Uh, super fun. And let's just get into this podcast with Ignatic Fronts for Roger Murray. Roger, I think we might have met a really long time ago. I'm having a flashback. Was it in Cleveland? Were you out with Good Charlotte yeah. and Less Than Jake? I was just talking about that. Really? Yeah. I have friends with those Good Charlotte guys. They gave me a shout out at that show and said I was their favorite music journalist. It was like wow, a high point awesome. of my career. That was the only time I've ever been in a played or arena, toured the arenas. Yeah, that and was at the Tower City. They loved, those guys loved uh, the Disasters, my solo band. Right. And I remember when Benji came up to me at CBGB's, he's like, man, he, he was hanging out here and there. He said, man, I really want to bring the Disasters on tour. Would you come with us? I was like, are you for real? You know? And he sure, he made it happen. What were mm-hmm. those shows like for you guys? It was a, it was a, it was amazing, but it was like starting at the top and going down. It was, yeah. it was like usually like, you start at the bottom and you go up. Yeah, but it was like what a, what a thing to start playing at arenas and then just find yourself back to the clubs. You know, it was weird. <laughs> it was less than Jake was on that. Yeah, team? and um, newfound glory. Oh wow, yeah, it's it was cre- great. It's like we went out there and. The people thought it was like the Beatles automatically. People just cheered. They didn't even know us. And it's it's a paid audience of some sort. All little <laughs> kids. <laughs> well, we made some good fans out of that too. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's just really weird because I mean, at the time, Good Charlotte, every song on that record was a hit, yeah. and they were hosted MTV. And I remember in that specific tour, Newfound Glory was on that tour too, and they were cha- and they were, the management they were trying to say we should switch. Because Good Charlotte was blowing up, and Newfound Glory was kind of headstrong about not switching, mm. and I think it hurt them more than anything. Because after Good Charlotte played, People they had leave. to play, and a lot of kids left because Good Charlotte was the band for the little kitties. So yeah. they were like breaking while you were on that uh, tour. I, yeah, on like fire. While it was happening, on fire. Is it they crazy? They were hosting to watch? MTV, everything. Right. right. Is it crazy to watch like kids from like Good Charlotte and Newfound Glory who? I know they're they're not really hardcore bands at all, but like they're kind of hardcore kids, and mm-hmm. sort of came out of that scene a little bit. Is it like crazy to see not only a band who could like make their career being those kids, but like be super super successful like that? Yeah, but I've seen it my whole life, my whole career. I have flyers I can show you where you see Agnostic Front over here, and then you see The Offspring, right. Rancid. Uh, should I keep going? Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's yeah. like everything's been a, a like a launch pad. They, all their show first shows were with us, and they were excited to play with us. Right. Uh, the band from Chicago. What's that band from Chicago? It's really popular. Oh, Follow Boy. No. Oh no, not Follow Boy. We played them. No, the other one that's huge. Rise Against. Rise Against. Yeah, they did right. a tour with us. Yeah, and they were the openers. Nobody cared. Mm. And it's it's story of my life. Well, you guys, you guys hooked me up. When I was like, shit, 18 years old, do you remember playing a benefit show at an Elks Lodge in New Jersey? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And I, for Matt Levitin. Yeah. was my best friend, and that was the venue I did shows at, and me and Tim Shaw from Ensign, Tim. you know, hooked up that show. 
And we had like roster booked. I mean, people were like, yo, we want to help out. We had this amazing thing booked. And then like, it's just like a few days before. And I think either Dave Franklin or the sick of it all guys or somebody hit us up and we're like, yo, agnostic front wants to do the show. We didn't even, we were like, we didn't even ask. Cause we're like, there's no way agnostic front will do the show. And then like two, three days before the show happens, we got a call being like, yo, they're up for it. Like they want to play. Can they play? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Maybe find some, find some room to this giant hardcore festival at an Elks Lodge. Yeah, remember that. So I appreciate that. I never got a chance to say it, even though it was like nearly 20 years ago. That was, I was going to say, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And that show actually got one of my first bands signed. Because we had a sick pit at that show. <laughs> it was like the first time I just had a big circle in front of one of my bands. Somebody's like, got to scoop them up. <laughs> worked. Totally worked. Roger, I mean, how did sort of the idea for, for is my ride... happening right now? We're yeah, this is happening oh, yeah. right now. Oh, yeah. That's how we do We're it. Cruising. We're like oh, cruising. Oh, man. So, you know, um, <laughs> is it, has it been happening? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. We will. Yeah, 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 we cut it out. Edit goes to good. you, man. It's yeah, cool. yeah. Got you, man. It goes Thank to you. you. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is awesome. We're artists. We're just family. shooting the shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, like that's the whole. Yeah. Vibe. That's the whole thing. That's the vibe. Oh, I like this. That's the vibe. Let's roll some dice while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, so we've all kind of read the book. I mean, how how did kind of the idea for it come about? I mean, why did you think now is a good time to kind of get this out there? Well, it was it. You know, it's weird. Now is the time that it came out, but this thing started in 1999. I was mm-hmm. in, I was in the studio at Big Blue Mini here in uh, New Jersey at the time. And Aaron we, Farley. And that, we, we were working with with uh, Lars Fredrickson. Oh uh, yeah. He came out to produce Riot Riot Upstart, and he was staying with me for uh, three and a half weeks in Long Island City. I was just drove by Long Island City. I can't even believe it. But anyway, um, and you know, like usual, like you know, having a casual conversation like we do, we've been doing this forever with all these other bands we tour with, and they're like, "Oh, tell us the stories, tell us about old New York, tell us about this," and everybody's always like, "Wow, that's great, that's great." But Lars is like, "No way, you know what? We're gonna write a book," and I'm like, "Okay," mm-hmm. and he goes, "No, right now." So we went and bought a little tape recorder, that's and that's how it all started. Huh. And if you look at the liner liner notes on the Ride Ride Upstar, you'll see. I'm writing a book. It's called uh, Just Us. That's what I was calling it back then. There's no justice. It's just us. Right. And it's going to be out soon. Well, soon took a long time. It was <laughs> 1999. Crazy. Uh, a lot of things happened on the way to, you know, fast forward on the way to like about three years ago when things got serious again. I lost a book twice. Um, you know, torn a lot between... Roger Marin, the disasters, agnostic front, and then the alligators, to having two kids, you know. So you know, life got in the way. Yeah. May, may I add, it's pretty much life got in the way. But then all of a sudden, uh, it was time to finish it, and here I am today. So, what was the process kind of like? Would Would you just kind of talk talk it out? Or? Yeah, I was talking. To, the original way this started before it took real shape was I had that little tape recorder, and. Um, and then I started talking into it. I hate typing. I still do today. I hate typing. I, anytime I do an interview, if, if it's a type interview, I'm like, I don't want to. I'm going to call me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know? And I then I got stuck with a bunch of tapes. I'm like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know? So then I started producing bands. That's why I walked in the studio. I was like, wow, really cool. So in exchange, I never did production for any money. I did it for, could you take these 
tapes and put them onto something I could work with. And they oh, gave cool. me a bunch of floppy disks. I still have these original floppy disks, which is all the stories, you know. So now I have something to work with, you know, and I could add or do stuff with. So then uh, fast forward to 2001, uh, the World Trade Center thing happened. And I lost it all. I lost it all, except for the floppy disk. I lost it all because I had the, my, my laptop backed up to my red computer and everybody was trying to find out what's going on, viruses, you know. Bam, I lost this and that. Oh, shit. So then I said, I'm going to start this over like two years later. And I bought this thing called Naturally, this program called Naturally Speaking Dragon, which you talk yeah. and you train your, your computer to your voice. And I'm trying to get the shortcut from not typing. You know? oh, I see. That took about a month and a half to train my computer to understand me because my accent being a, <laughs> a coming from Cuba, B in New York. This computer is like, where is this guy from? You know, <laughs> it wasn't like a normal guy. You know, so that took like a month and a half where we wouldn't type the craziest things because I would talk. I had to read this horrible thing and these words I didn't even know how to even pronounce. And until like it got used to me that's talking, really funny. you know. And then I lost it again with another virus, you know. And then that's when I I'm not trying to plug Apple over here, but that's when I switched to Apple. Yeah, yeah. and I never lost it again. But. I had tried to start it all over again. This time I had my wife in the pocket and she started typing it. Everything go. cool. You know, everything was working out. Mm -hmm. And um, let's get forward to where we are today. I, I did an interview with John, John Whitehorn, who, was, who helped me write the book, co-author with me. And um, and it was basically, what was that? Louder Than, what was that? Louder Than Hell. Louder Than Hell, his book, an Oral History of of metal but he wanted to do like a crossover thing mm. and he wanted to hear it from like the, someone from that crossover era and then when i when we did this thing he's like wow this is amazing you know he's doing all these metal things all of a sudden he's speaking to someone from a different angle right and then we hit it off and then when he found out we were doing our film uh the godfathers of hardcore which is done and it'll be out by the end of the year um He's a good friend with Ian McFarlane, the director of the film. And he's like, hey, man, you know, I, it, Ian has saw my book, all that stuff. He, and he said, John, you got to read this stuff. It's incredible. So he, he's, it's, John's like, where, where can I read it? He says, get a hold of Roger. So he called me again, and, and I sent him everything. And he loved it. He's like, cool. this is fantastic. I want to help you. I had my pride in the way of everything else. You know, I've been working on this thing sure. for so long. You know, so I was like, no, sorry, you know, this is something I'm doing on my own. I can't do it, blah, 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 you know. Three years later go by to fast forward again. And out of nowhere, John hit me up. He comes, hey, man, how's that book going? I want to I want to read the rest. Tell me, show me where you're at. You uh -huh. know, you know, I, and I'm like, you know, what? I saw, I, that night I went to bed with my wife. I'm like, you know what? She's like, let him help you because you're never going to finish it. It's the yeah. truth. It's the truth. And I I accepted, and it's the best thing I ever did because not only that is I had my vision of, of front to back, and I had my stories front to back, but it was very therapeutic for him to get involved because he opened up a bunch of can of worms that I had closed off that probably would have never shared. I see, and it was really good because it, so it was like not telling only that, it to somebody else, right? It was, exactly, right. It was very therapeutic in a, a psychiatry or way, whatever. Yeah. It was really cool because it's, it's completely somebody that has nothing to do with. Nobody to judge me. No one to know anything about me. Yeah, so yeah. it's like talking to a complete stranger. Right, and it was all you could tell it's a complete stranger anything because they, you know, it's 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 like a hidden secret. You right. talk to a complete stranger, you know. Yeah, they don't know anybody you're talking about. Yeah, they don't know. yeah and yeah. he was just blown away, fascinated. We we started with the the bones of what was there, and then we just went in. And is he from New York? Yeah, 
He's originally from New York. He's in New Jersey now. He's he's uh, louder than hell. Is one of his books, and so is the um, where's the other two books he did? The Al Jurgensen book, Scott Ian book. Oh, okay. So wow. He's a veteran writer. He's a really and a good person. And but he's more seasoned in the metal world. So sure. hardcore and and my life is something totally blowing him away and right. he loved every minute of it and we just kept digging into different areas different into into different things going back and forth i have files of, i have printed because i print everything it's about this big this big going back and forth little markers and yeah. and finally here's the finished product that went you know through a couple edits you did one of the edits didn't you nice yeah, Michael did one of the edits. Michael Crowlin, shout out. Yeah. <laughs> After all the years like of like thinking about it and you had it and you'd redone it a couple times, were there like certain sections or stories that you're like, yo, that has to be in? Like those are crucial? Or did you kind of leave that to John? No, no I, I think there was definitely newer stories added to it, of course. Mm-hmm. And there were stories that had to be in it there. Um. You know, it just took whatever direction, like what we're doing right here. This is it. This is whatever direction it goes, the direction it goes. And every conversation took a different direction, a different angle. And if I spark something, I said something that was really interesting. Wait mm-hmm. a minute. Hold right. up, hold up, hold up. Let's back up. And then he's just, wow, fascinating, you know? And it, one of the most challenging parts of the whole thing was... Because when I originally, everything I had done, was it, it, was, it was kind of all over the place. Because, you know, I, I, I suffer from ADD and ABC, EFG and everything else, you know. <laughs> and I'm all over the place. Because yeah, yeah. my mind races. My mind is everywhere. I'm thinking a hundred things at the same time. I, I'm restless. I really am a restless person. I don't even think I know how to relax. Right. And um, Which is a hard thing I've been dealing with. But It makes sense. You watch some AF videos, especially when you were... A sprightly young man, you were crazy up there. Yeah, you're doing some things with your body. I could, I'd pull a rotator cuff and like <laughs> hurt my hip. I probably did all that stuff. Trust me. You know? But it, when you're a kid, you ever see those little kids when they're doing stuff? Like, how did, did you not twist your arm? Up <laughs> right. Yeah, they contort. But I was everywhere, you know, and um, it was hard to put it all in a in a in, in an order where it flowed front to back and and just dropping in the parts in the right location that was really a challenge i wanted to ask about that did you have to like have someone help you chronologically keep track no i the good thing about me is i'm i've been a hoarder my whole life when it comes to punk rock and hardcore and i've got i've got you'd be surprised my flyer collection my poster collection my record collection my t-shirt collection my bracelet collection my even after the fires yeah, I had the one wow. fire rock, not, took out one part. I lost a lot in that fire, but I still, you know, I had five, uh, three fires in that building, three fires, and in the squad building. But it was just that one took out the one, and that was a, a big one, a big, uh, a big charge. But there's all the four other walls of shit, you know. <laughs> but that was that was awful. Most worst thing about that fire was we lost our dog. Yeah, that was sure. the worst thing about it. You said in the book that. People would actually light fires on purpose in those squats to try to get people out. Yeah, well, the early we're going back. We're, this is another. This is early. What you're talking about? Yeah, you know, back then they wanted to get everybody else. So they could sell the building. Landlords this is like the doing, East Village yeah. or Lower East Side. 
and and we we took over a building that was be a warehouse. This one in particular wasn't being warehouse, but the landlord wanted to get out because he could sell the shell, the whole building. Where so was that in the city again? That was in 9th Street and C. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of that building. We did a benefit for that too. I can't think of the top of my head right now. I'm a little burnt out. Um, but anyway, he just burned to get everybody out, you know, and there was tons of stuff like that going on. There was, there was buildings I was living in that were vacant, almost like four or five only people living in there because they wanted to wear what they called warehousing. wanted to, it's, it was, you make more of a profit selling a building with a lot of empty space and with people living in it. So they would, as you're living in there as a tenant, but we would go in and take the warehouse apartments, but there was actual real people living there. And huh. nobody would come in because we had dogs or whatever and you could legally squat back then anything so we know there was like four or five warehouse apartments we go in and we squat it and we claimed it huh. you know, so now they had to get rid of us too but there was regular tenants in there Interesting. so it's like you can't sell a building if it's got tenants in it because of rent control they ain't going to go anywhere unless you buy them out hmm. so as the people would leave they'd, they'd rather leave it empty Right, so they have more. So when the new investor comes in, well, I've got about fifteen units that are empty. There's three, three that aren't. So you deal with the three control, but now you got fifteen you could update and make a killing. Huh. That's gentrification, my friend. You know, that's yeah, what was yeah. going on in New York City. When did that time. change with the squatting rules like that, where they started really cracking down on it? You know, I kind of left the, the the last squat I lived in. It's Apparently it's beautiful. I have to drive by oh, really? to see it. But we they sold it to to the tenants for a dollar. But the conditions were you had to redo everything with all their stuff, and you, it stays in a family. You can't really like sell right. it or nothing like that. But then you it's kind of you get a loan for everybody, and everybody chips in for the new boiler, the new heating system, the new electric. You have to bring it all up to code, you right, know. Right, right. And but by that time. We, we were kind of over a lot of stuff and dealing with the fires. We were just over it and sometimes dealing with the people. What year was that around? Oh, uh, 1990. Maybe around 96, 97, that building converted. Okay. Maybe even later, that building converted to a legal. It was <laughs> one of the last ones. But sometimes the people you you were living with, some, some people, some the family oriented ones, were, they wanted to do the right thing. The other people were there for freeloading, you know, right. free rent. We had stupid thing like a, we would all chip in, like a you know once a month, hundred fifty dollars chip in just to get stuff for the building help. Some people wouldn't even do that. Mm. It's like it's only hundred fifty dollars, you know. Each of us uh, contribute whatever labor we knew how to do. I was I did all the lot lot of the electrical. People had different reasons for being yeah. there, right? Yeah. What's it like for you kind of hanging out in that area now? Like, is it surreal? Are you like, oh, I saw this guy gets head bashed in here and now it's like a fancy store? Yeah, you know, it's... I like to tell... I like to say it's just not my party anymore. That's always okay with me leaving New York because it changed so much. The New York I love, you look at Taxi Driver, that's the New York I love. That's the New York that that kind of molded me. And, and 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 really, my passion is that New York, the New York that it became. I mean, I was okay leaving. You know, it was okay for me to come and visit, and mm-hmm. I am okay with that. You know, and I, I just didn't want to dive into now. You know, I did have a rent control apartment I left in Long Island City. It was a a legal two bedroom, legal ba- a real bathroom, a real kitchen, a real two bedrooms, and a big living room. And it, at that time, I left. It was a thousand eleven hundred, which is amazing long out of city but um 
you know, having kids and stuff, walking up four flights of stairs, whatever, you get the quality of life was a lot better and easier where I moved to. And I was okay leaving. I was already, I had, you know, once, when you're a single guy in New York City, everything's fun, everything's crazy. But when you got married, you got kids, you know, it's different. School is harder, everything's harder. I'm dealing with that right now. I got two kids in the city, in Jersey City. And I'm just like, I think in my head sometimes, I'm like, I'm like, I would have just walked in my front door like an hour before I just did if I had a garage. I'm like, what, what would this do if I yeah. just split? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like where? But then there's that balance. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I want to raise kids out in the suburbs or, or like the type of place that I felt like I had to escape. You know, there's a reason I live where I live. So I don't know what's the what's the bonus. I'm yeah. torn. Well, we for, can talk. <laughs> well, for me, you know, being as long as I'm buying an international airport, I can live anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and I mean, literally anywhere. And it was just more comfortable. And I'm kind of glad. I'm kind of glad. My kids got something, a whole different life than I ever had. Right. Probably what I fantasized from the beginning, why I got myself in so much trouble in my book to try to make it better for my for Nadia. You, you see my path, and I, I spiraled backwards, downward, because I didn't have anything, and I felt like I was going back, reverse, and that's where I started messing up, dealing with drugs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of happy where I'm at. And it's okay to come visit. It yeah, really yeah. is. What was it like? I mean, speaking of that, like it seemed like you were doing all this stuff for your family in the book and the drug stuff, and obviously the prison thing is a big part of the book. I mean, what was it like kind of revisiting kind of that period of your life for the book? Um, I did, you know, here's one thing for sure. I don't, I didn't think I wanted to hit up on the prison thing, which is a good thing about collaborating with John. And even I was telling you about the way that the book started today. It's pretty cool. I'm going to send it to you. I'm mm-hmm. going to send you the skeleton. It's pretty cool. It was completely, it was very different. And there's, that's one thing I wasn't thinking about hitting because my plan and my initial bones of the book ended with cause for alarm. So think about it. There's no prison. It was just because I've always felt that our, I've always felt that our fans love the very early, early, early beginning, which they do. It's true. So I figured, let me stop at cause for alarm, and if everybody liked it, then let me continue. So mm. so everybody got a little bit more out of it. Waiting, it was more rewarding for the reader because now you got till current you know so i was never gonna go that far um and it was it was it was okay again therapeutic very good Mm -hmm. to talk about it because i've never have i never really never have talked much about it but i never felt like i had to because when i release one voice i've always felt like one voice is my uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, or my Who Quadrophenia, where it's all theme-based albums. Mm. I, I never did a theme-based album. Right. One voice is that kid fucking up and going to prison. And the whole record is that. Lyrically going, fucking up, going through each step and getting out. That's one voice. And mm. in fact, the last song in one voice is uh, is a song about like my stepfather being so brutally and fucking, fucking me up that fucked my whole life up. It's the last song. You Crazy. Know? Came in the studio. We need one more song. Okay, I got it. Let's go. Show Matt and what to do. Play guitar. And Kim went in there and and I released that. It was because it all had to do with all that. You know, my whole spiraling. Everything had to do with that. I didn't know until I started doing one voice. You know, were those like the things with like your stepfather and stuff? Was that stuff you kind of came to when you were doing time? 
Uh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm a little... Like, like, are those, like, the types of things that you were really thinking about and dealing with prior to going to jail? Or did it kind of spark in your brain, like, while you were there? Just processing. While I was incarcerated, I got to process a lot of stuff that I didn't because I was living in a moment, living in a time. And, right. And none of it really bothered me as much. I mean, there was definitely mental abuse and physical abuse, but... There was always a reasoning behind it. I think it's just the upbringing, the way we all, most of us older people are raised, you know, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think a lot of the people in my age category were raised. It was always through some sort of physical abuse, you know, your mom was quick to hit you with a belt or a shoe or something. That's how we were raised. Yeah. But, and I get where he was coming from. He wanted to, you know, we were living in bad neighborhoods, bad areas. And boy, you better tough up. You know, and that's where he's coming from. But some of it was farther than that. Right. But his whole purpose is just to toughen the shit up, toughen us up, you know. But there's better ways to do it now, you sure. know. I could have done the same thing with my kids, but I know better, you know. Yeah. And and, and I, my kids go to jujitsu five years. They're going to deal with not bullying and don't and, and deal with a bully if they have to. Right, right. You know what I mean? Can I ask it's you a different. question about that? And I'm serious about the jujitsu because... My girls are six. I have twins. Okay. And I tried it. I tried jujitsu, and they both flipped out, and they wouldn't do it. But in my head, I was like, I want you to have something like that. Is there an age to start that on? I don't mean to derail it, but I, I'm just would, so fascinated by this. My son started at six. My daughter started at eight. Okay. And they're still there till date. Yeah. Huh. Six and eight? Yeah. Let me see. No. I was wrong. My son started at four. My daughter wow. started at yeah, six. Yeah, they started four. Uh, yeah, yeah, because they got five years in. Uh, wow. Almost five years. Gotta four and six. Again. Maybe your girls. You know what it is? Sometimes um, yeah. it depends where you go. Yeah, and, and I'm getting off the topic, of course. Oh, but no, sorry. If you go like there the, are no times. Like I, I like the bullyproof Gracie. Jiu -Jitsu. I go. I do yeah. Gracie. I do straight up Gracie. Right. Jiu -Jitsu. But there's different types. But from mm -hmm. the Academy Gracie, they have a one thing called bullyproof, mm -hmm. and it starts at that age of six. There's a lot of games, and they're not. They're learning through playing, and it gets a little bit more serious at the age of eight. Okay. So if you get them to play and learn it but it's it there's a reason why they're doing this stuff they teach they're of learning course. how to roll they're learning how to fall not in your head they're learning how to move and eventually you'll see it as it goes but i mean anyway that's the way i, I rather i rather approach things than just hitting my my son but there was also a mental thing going on there because he was also didn't like my dad and it was mm -hmm. there was like trying to win me over or and and th there was a lot like there's no need to take something somebody give you and destroy it just to prove a point. I don't. Oh, the get rabbit it. thing is haunting. Yeah, man. that's that, haunting. That was very, and and in the film there's another part that you'll see when you get to see the film. But there was a lot. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's uncalled for. Uh, it's completely uncalled for. Like who who in a right mind would do that? But he wasn't in the right mind. Mm -hmm. And this was out of his own anger. Out of his, he was probably pissed off that. My dad just showed up with something or just anger. And he was probably, I, I, I don't know, he was probably drunk or something at the time. But most of the time when he acted out, he was in, in you know, he, he was drunk or some kind of substance abuse, yeah. you know. And it seemed like you were always trying to look out for Freddie, too. When yeah, he was I there. always did. You know, the other day I was um, I was with my wife and and, I, and not every memory is, is bad. But the, the, the sad thing about it is every bad thing you do goes farther like as a memory you know mm. that's the really sad thing about it because i was i was with my wife and i was like i was remembering when i was 13 years old i think and i wanted my first boom box and it was the only place to get boom boxes is you had to come into this we were living in in uh 
we may have been still in Patterson and we had to drive into the city and 14th street used to be all the electronic area, mm. you know, you know, and, 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 and it was Christmas time. So he took me to get my first boom box and you know, there's good memories. And I was remember shopping for a Briz boom box. Of course it was a budget and you know, you're a kid, but he got me a pretty fair looking cool one with a big speaker. There's good memories. There really mm-hmm. is. Sure. But the, 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 the bad memories overpower the good memories, man. And that's the damaging part. And that's my, a lot of the point of my story is like, you know, that it's like I messed up and all the mess up overpowered a lot of the good stuff in my life too. But I think in the end, I think I, I learned from it. And Freddie was, was that kid that I didn't want him to go through what I went through. How crazy is that I felt that my six-year-old brother would be safer with me living in an abandoned building among criminals, drug addicts, in a shitty time in New York? How crazy is that? Mm-hmm. I look at my kid, who's eight years old, and, and, and as I was going through my story and my wife was reading something, she goes, like, it's like taking my eight-year-old... Or at the time, six year old to to a place like who would do that, right? right. You think about it; it's Hard it's insane. Matter. That's how much safer I felt Freddie was with me, uh-huh. and my mom knew it. My mom allowed it. Huh. She knew it. Yeah, she allowed me to take him for the whole summer. She knew it. She knew I would because I was always protecting my brother and sister. She knew maybe who knows what kind of a harmful, dangerous situation you get into if you stay yeah. home. It's funny you talk about that because in the book, it's like when you read it, you know, like you're reading the stories and you're empathizing and sympathizing. But then when there's something that struck me as on the lighter side, it really strikes you on the lighter side. Reading your book and all of a sudden it's, yeah, Rodney Dangerfield introduced us once. Yeah. Like, well, how the hell? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's like the biggest left turn I would ever expect from someone in hardcore. You know what I mean? And it was so quick. It was like, <laughs> I was like. Me and Vinny, like, he just, he did his, his, his regular act. And, and he was so, like, nervous. And we, we, we were playing with Slayer. We were playing with Slayer at the Ritz. And there's a great write-up on that. I think that because our, for some reason, we being us, we were the New York band. We are playing with Slayer. And it was a it was right after the Crossroad Arm record. We got a really nice write-up in the paper. Yeah. And, and I've been trying to look for it. I think I may have remembered them actually saying Ronnie Dangerfield introduced, but it was so fast. I don't think people caught it, but it was, it was amazing. <laughs> you know, it's one of those crazy things that happened. Were you, uh, I was speaking of like articles from that time. I went ahead and revisited, um, when everybody was on Donahue in 86 oh. over that uh what was his name peter blonner article in the new yorker or new york magazine that highlighted all the hardcore kids were you in attendance no i never i never wanted to be i saw Vinny on it yeah if you look at a lobby i always stood away from all that stuff yeah just, it's just like there's even this ama- amazing footage that's going to be part of the film and you see they actually introduced they interview the whole band but me and i'm the singer Oh, really? You know, it's just like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. I know what they're fishing for. I know what they're fishing for. I know what they want. I know what they want to sell the public. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know where they're going to go with it, and it's going to go their way. Either way you put it, you know, you can say this is red, and it is red, but you know what? We're going to tell We're going to sell everybody that it's blue, and everybody believes it's blue. So I wasn't going to waste my time, right. to be honest with you, so I wouldn't even go to that. So you knew about it and just actively yeah, was just like, like, whatever, I'm not fuck that. deal with this. What? 
do you feel like the book was an opportunity for you to like clear up misconceptions? Like there's so much about maximum rock and roll and sort yeah. of them saying you guys were a white power band and sort of your perspective and sort of how. Yeah, but uh, genuine, the genuine people in the scene knew. Right. And I don't think it was a, 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 a for me to clear anything up, to be to to be honest with you, because throughout the years, I think we, you know, the, the, through the test of time, you know, here we are, you know, and it and, and you and you all you all know the story. It was a very tough time, very tough era. If anything, they threw us in the heat. The most, what I really wanted to get across was all, like all this fire aiming at us, throwing at us, put us in the front line of a lot of shit that we clearly didn't deserve to be in when we were speaking out against. And you brought all this danger and this element of hate and danger to my shows when I'm talking about not, not I'm, I'm clearly talking against it. And this is what you did. I just wanted to pinpoint that, like how much, how all the all the stuff that that could happen, and it was easy for them. They're just talking about it in a nice little suburban home, not dealing with it. Right. Guess what? We got to deal with it. You know, bad publicity is just as good as good publicity as long as you spell the name right. It worked for the Sex Pistols. It worked for Agnostic Front. So here you go. People coming out to see if we wear brown shirts. Like, hell no, we don't wear brown shirts. And then they're loving us. They're like, oh, wow, this is great. And then it backfired. Everything right. backfired. But at the same time, you have legit other people showing up because they believe. And then now the backfired, some of the stuff backfired. Now it's just confrontational. Now how do you got to deal with it? Right. You know? And that's... That's a dangerous situation to put yourself in, you know, or put people in when you're sitting back just typing about it and not being a part of it. Sure. You know? One of my favorite things you wrote in the book is uh, unity doesn't sell, hate does. Yeah. That's, I, I thought, and, and I physically, I physically put that in a book. That's I mean, That comes from me. I'm like, yeah. this is important. And it's the truth. They need, they need some kind of, uh, and at the same time, um, what do you call that? Uh, I'm looking for the right word. Controversy. Mm-hmm. Controversy is very powerful. And I like controversy because controversy is... I like... Con- but I don't like hate. I like controversy because mm-hmm. controversy makes you think. So it when you were question, like you know penning some of those lyrics back in the day, like were... Was some of the like fuel to do it like to fuck with people? No. To kind of stir the pot or... No, no, no. I, I don't think I did anything to fuck with anybody or... St- stirred a pot if anything fucking around and to fuck with people was more later on when i was with mad boy just <laughs> little little jabs that stuff you know right no um i like to always write about uh what i call social politics about what happens around me on a day-to-day basis. i i always like to think about what was fair i grew up in poverty i grew up in 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 and i had things that were a benefit to me but only because i was Hispanic and I grew up in poverty, but it wasn't good enough for someone else. And I don't believe in that. Right. You know, I believe in the same thing. I believe in school should be free for everybody. Um, health should be free for everybody. It's, it's, you know, some people say, oh, that's socialist way of thinking, but you know what? We're human beings. It's, 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 you know, free education. If you want it, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to be a bum and get like D's and C's and you know what, here's your limit. But if you got that little bright kid living in the Bronx who could get A plus, who could probably invent, who could get us to, to, to Mars or further, why hold them back? Right. Because they don't have A money or, or, or something. So I always think like those are good challenges, you know, and a lot of my lyrics have to do with that. Like what's fair to one should be fair to all. Right. 
that's that's all it was about because i i've experienced both sides yeah how i was gonna ask like how much did your experience play into that because you if i'm not mistaken you came to us at four mm-hmm. and it was part of a a refugee resettlement program? Pretty much. Everybody leaving Cuba from 1963, I think maybe, it's or 61, 63, 61, right. it started till just about, we were like probably some of the last planes that left. So almost like a semi-socialist practice is like the reason well, you got here. Right. You know, like my my family in Cuba weren't, um, were, were more on the well-off section, okay. if you want to say. We lived in a really nice house and, and, my uncle was a doctor, you know, it was nice, you know. So when Castro came in, he wanted equality for everybody, but his 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 vision was a little bit different. Yeah. And some of these people struggled to have what they had in their life and they felt like my father's side was the side that came in. They felt like, you know what, we've been struggling too hard. We're not just gonna collapse. Let's go to America, let's seek that American dream. Right. And a lot of people that came in that era were seeking that American dream. Just like a lot of foreigners coming anyway, like you're, you're in your waves of, of you know, your your Italians, your, you know, Irish, everybody coming for a better life. Sure. An opportunity. And that opportunity was about to go. And they're like, well, we better get out of here. I guess. I was a kid. I followed my mom, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There was no political anything <laughs> yeah, part yeah, about yeah. that. Sure. I was just, I'm going where mom goes because <laughs> dad was in the military and I got to go. Right. And I could end up who knows where. You know, I ended up here. It's crazy that, you know, all these years later and it's like your lyrics and life story hold up. You know what I mean? It's like the same shit now. Yeah. It repeats itself. It's like every adult. Meaning when you achieve adulthood like myself and you have kids and you're just like, motherfucker, I thought, you know, it's like, I didn't want jetpacks, but I I would love for everyone to have a doctor. Yeah, man. You <laughs> know, Only immigrants can't afford to come to the Lower East Side anymore. Now, no, 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 those days are <laughs> over for that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> over. Yeah. But besides for that, those rich white immigrants need a place to go. <laughs> hey, I was, my and family And a blue building is where they're going to go. Just. 30 years before that <laughs> it was that's where it's I, it's really weird what the lower east side is turning yeah into. yeah it's really weird yeah and a lot was, of areas too all, all over the i travel the world i got to see like big changes in amsterdam berlin yeah. london chicago Happen all these major everywhere. cities everything yeah. that's a major city it's a major hub there's potential lots of tourism they just Threw everybody out to every the other outsides of the area, and they say, "Yeah, it's nice. It is nice, but it's it's not genuine anymore." Mm-hmm. You know, I miss those street walkers. You know, not that I went to them, but <laughs> right. that was awesome. You know, I miss taxi. I miss the triple X movies and stuff. I don't like. I'm not. I go to Times Square is Disneyland. I don't get it. <laughs> if I want to go to Disneyland. I go to Disneyland. This is New York City. Yeah. Get those rated X movies back up there. <laughs> I, I had, uh, I had a qu- Did we play a game on this show where we, we, I have had a friend of yours? I see you have to... Mystery friend. It's called Mystery Friend. Okay. I hit up one of your friends. My and, friends? One of your friends, yep. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I said, uh, Roger's coming on the podcast tonight. What's a good story to ask him about? Um, oh so God. I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about any of these and if you could, <laughs> afterwards, if you want to guess who it was. But... Uh, this person said, ask about the story of the van crash in Staten Island, the one where the wheel fell off, was Sam the pit bull in the van? <laughs> Who asked you that? You gotta guess. You gotta guess. This is mystery, friend. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
It seems like a deep cut I, we I, got I, right here. This is good. That mystery friend knows me very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got a couple other suggestions. I'm scared I'm going to give it away, though. Well, let's hear the story. The, yeah. Is it Craig Satari? Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know it is. Yeah, I actually hit up. I actually hit up Paul Delaney, and he was like, "Craig, we'll have better ones." Yeah, all right. There's there's a couple <laughs> things, you know, like there's some things, you know, they just they're just better off with. Here's another one. Good friends, <laughs> either that or the story of the backpack in the supermarket and the meat pot. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or let us know if any of these. Or, get or the on. last one, ask about Maddie Henderson's first on the road lunch with AF. The the lunch? Yeah. I can't remember the lunch, but I remember it, one of the stories in my in my book is when he was sitting here just like you sitting there waiting, being anxious, you know? And I just I had to make sure he was road ready because I, I like I'm a prankster. And I like, you know, that's that's how I enjoy myself on the road. I like to 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 have fun or pull pranks and that I think that's in the story where I run yeah. balls naked and I jump over him he was like whoa and just, <laughs> he he was okay with it, he played it I'm cool like he's enough. okay with it but I used to do a lot there's a lot of crazy things we used to do just to harden him up I guess for the road <laughs> there was a one time I did I put in the book the one time his mom sent him a care package <laughs> his mom sure. sent him a care package who does that right <laughs> 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 like. And he gets this really nice little care package that gets it. We're at the house. We're, we're doing one voice. We're, we're into like, we're in a studio practicing and yeah. I look at this care package. I look at Craig, uh, at Craig and we just start laughing. We know, he knows something's going to happen. So I carefully cut the bottom of this box and I took everything out and I stuffed it with corn, <laughs> just corn. Cause he was from the Midwest. <laughs> So then I, and I sealed it all back. And then the next day I gave him this, he, he, oh yeah, I'm your mom getting mail. He opens it up. He's all excited. And he's just pulling out cobs of corn. <laughs> he goes, what, what is this? That's how he got his name, Corn Cobby. We call him Corn Cobby. That's an inside joke. Matt Henderson, we call him Corn Cobby. And uh, he's like, I don't understand. He kept, saying, he kept looking. I go, I don't understand. I, like he must have talked to his mom and she must have said she sent him something. I don't know. Cause I, just, I don't understand. <laughs> You know, like we would do stuff like that. What was in the care package? I can't even remember. Any, any good swag? I can't even remember. <laughs> but there's been so many stories like that. Yeah. Tons of stories. I mean, was it hard? How did you kind of manage to keep your sense of humor sort of during, like, living in those squats? Like, you talk about all the rats and how dangerous it was. Like, were you still able to kind of, like, have a sense of humor? Were you always on edge or... No, I don't, you know, we were on edge was we had to be on edge because we had to be aware of what's going on. You can't, and I still am on edge. Like I don't, I, I get uncomfortable in crowded areas. I don't like having my back to something. I, 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 I wish I had eyes all around my head, you know, that's just me. But, um, I didn't, I never felt, I never felt like I was in danger. It's really weird, but I was, I, I don't feel like I ever was, but who knows? There was probably times that I really was, you know? And um, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things that just there was, a, there was a, a level of comfortness there, a level of warmth, and and being all around my peers, we all we all really looked out for each other, man. We were like a real solid tribe. We weren't a gang. There's a difference between a gang and I guess a tribe. We weren't we weren't like gangs are running drugs and doing things that you would consider a gang mentality. I guess you know we, yeah. we were just pure survival we found knew your we, own family we knew we had to protect each other you know yeah. and that's what we did but at the same time we had so much fun because we were you know we were 
we never felt like the protecting part of it had to really come out as much because when we were together, it was more about fun. And then something happened, something happened. We had to deal with it. I was wondering with, with, with that is like when you guys were doing this stuff, did you have an idea at the time that you were like trailblazing what ended up being like, you know, a very important and vital like scene and music and something that's like lasted it's been mocked like all over the world like i mean i've been to like german hardcore festivals half the bands sound like agnostic front look like agnostic front and you know you know did you guys know at the time that it was like that important no we didn't but it's interesting there's two things i'm getting out of what your conversation we're having two things you one thing you mentioned is really important i hope i remember the second one is that anybody can bomb, mimic a sound, mimic a look, mimic or play. Anybody could play a song and it will sound exactly like whatever. But there's a difference in actually living it and living those and living that experience. And I think that's the secret ingredient to a lot of our, our bands when we started mm-hmm. off is that that little element of danger was was that creativity of everything, you know? Sure. You, you know, anybody could pretend to be anything they want. And that's one thing about Agnostic Front is when you did get to meet us or like as a one-on-one person or at a show and you kind of felt like it was genuine. It was a a connection and everybody wants to be a part of something that's real and genuine. If you didn't have that connection, if you didn't feel that you would walk away with a whole different outlook on stuff. You don't want to, you don't want to be a part of something that's not real, right? Right. You don't want to be, you don't want to even be associated to it. And I think that was, that's been the secret to our uh, longevity, maybe our legacy. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, which I just forgot, and I didn't want you to, I didn't want to forget. Let me try to think. What, what was that question? I was again? saying, did you know <clears throat> what you guys were doing would, would wind up so important? The German festivals and people sounding like you, looking like you. Oh, okay. Here's what I wanted to say. Out of all the punk hardcore scene worldwide, isn't it amazing that the New York scene was the one that's bridged? everywhere yeah. talking about germany right they took so much of the new york hardcore scene they love it south america you, it, singapore japan australia listen look at that we we created those those bridges we have all around new york city how many bridges we got how many yeah. tunnels we got and the new york hardcore scene did this and on the forefront of it all we're bands like agnostic front leading that sick of it all mad ball murphy's law crow mags and we were doing something leeway we were doing something that was so important we didn't know we were doing we were creating something we had no idea we were just having fun just out there having a good time but for some reason the world gravitated to new york i think that the sheer honesty of what you feel from those records for all these bands and music was just like saying something and they were feeling it yeah, and it was a time where a lot of it was kind of like old New York, you know. Sure. Like even if you're going out to South America, like a lot of it's so like relevant to some some of my lyrics of early lyrics because people were actually living it everywhere. They just didn't have anybody that that was on a forefront talking about it. And right. Wow, what a connection! I met people and I met a person in, in in Russia who did three and a half years in prison just for listening to my record. How crazy is that? Whoa, that's all he did. Because in Russia, prior to when the wall came down, you know, prior to the whole that whole thing, it was illegal to listen to any type of metal or music Uh-oh. like like that. And when right. they got caught, they got punished. Wow! And it was amazing to sign this guy's record. It was cause for alarm. After so many years, he was in tears. 
Crazy. Oh my God. That's how emotion, that's how much the New York hardcore bridge was everywhere, you know? And something that kind of you talk about in the book is sort of agnostic front sound and sort of how you were coming from hardcore and then you had like other people join and you'd go more metal and then it'd go back. I mean, how did you kind of like watch that line? Well, you know, it wasn't even watching the line. It was just, just it, was, it was part of growth, you know, part of, you know, with growth comes changes and, and just people around us and friends and sub, subliminally not knowing we're influencing each other. And it was just all that going on. It wasn't like we woke up one day like we're going to write a metal song. That, that never happened. It's just this is what came out. Yeah, this is what with this lineup, this is what we were best at. Because you know, later on, you saw different changes because that's all we knew how to do best at this lineup. So let's not pretend we could do something else. This is mm. what we do. It seemed like you guys were one of the first bands to really cross over in that way, though. Well, I, I like to think that we were we were definitely uh, one of those pioneering bands with a lot of different styles of the music as you go along in history. We were at least on the forefront of it. Yeah. You know, if Leeway. you think about it. Yeah, think about it like we were on a forefront, the COC, DRI, Agnostic right. Front, Chromax, all that stuff, forefront, leeway, forefront of the of the whole crossover thing, you know? Then think about One Voice, and it's like we were on the forefront of that whole new schoolish type of thing. Take my vocals out of One Voice, if you're familiar with One Voice. Add Freddie's vocal. Just mm. do that. It's it's like you hear Madball. Mm. You hear it, you know, it's right. like, wow, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it was, that was a rev, the, the change of something different, you know? Like, we were just always there, you know, on the forefront of it. And we've always just recycled ourselves, you know? Yeah. We just recycle ourselves. If we're going to sound or be anything else, we might as well just recycle ourselves, you know? Yeah. We've had, Sick of It All came on, and they were talking yeah, about... Yeah, Lou and Pete came on. And, which was great, because they said that, you know, they, they deal with... Um, want with being prolific and wanting to keep forward thinking and making new records and then uh it seems really big now to go do a record to go to a festival and they want to hear the whole record which is weird because there's some songs you didn't play live Mm -hmm. but then they want to hear the whole thing and they're like we love that the people love it but sometimes it's looking back and doing the whole thing is can be weird because like we have all this great new stuff we love doing and we're still having fun which is tough sometimes you know you want to play something and and you know what it's not the same everywhere else like in europe we 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 play a lot more newer stuff in america they they just want to hear more victim of pain cause for alarm and live at cbgb stuff which is cool which we enjoy because now we get to play it over here more than over there because over there they don't want to hear this mm-hmm. so it's like you know you, we don't do the same sets over there as we do here it's different you know and it's okay with me because I, I I would be so like it'll be Groundhog Day if I had to do the same thing over and over and over. I'm glad we get to revisit things in different ways, different areas. I never would have thought that. That's fantastic. So like yeah. even you guys play it by Australia or something, you switch it up to yeah. That's- if if I was to show you what what would be a U.S. set list, it's it's mind blowing. It's so, so yeah. much old stuff. And if I show you a, a set list from Europe, it's a lot of our new current stuff and maybe one or two songs from United Blood, maybe one or two songs from Victim and Pain, no cause for alarm songs. It's really how odd, how different areas yeah, are, how receptive they are. Records, oh, great. In certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fine with me because yeah, I can't, I can't play 15 albums. Is that what it's out there? You know, it's sure. like way too much to think about. So I'm okay playing a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there and changing it up, you know? Speaking of lineup changes, if I've counted correctly, you've had nine drummers. Wow. So, <laughs> who's the best one? 
Wow, that's a tough question. I mean, there's certain ones that were great for certain records, you know. Right. I, mean, I love Dave Jones. He, I think he, you know, if it wasn't for Dave Dave Jones, you know, I, I probably would have never done Victim if I could have never got Victim Paint Across because that right. was my masterpiece of all my songs. And Dave really, you know, every, each drummer had a, it, their important role. Louis and, and Louis Biero with, uh, with Cause for Alarm, you know. You know, so I would say that's a tough question. Yeah. Willie was great for Liberty and Justice, live at CBGB's and One Voice. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Coletti was great because we he, he went on a road with us. Okay. And um, he never got his opportunity to actually record anything. Was it? And he did our he did our he did our victim and pain tour not till later on. And but I'm way ahead now. I should have started with Rabies. I forgot about oh, my single. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, which is more of more of a friendship than anything. More friendship than drums at that sure. point. It was all yeah. friends. It didn't matter about who could play or what could play. Obviously none of us could play and I couldn't even sing. <laughs> so it didn't even matter. It was just friendship, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, keeping along the line, then then Steve Gallo is how did you get nine? Am I near nine? <laughs> Steve Gallo. I think we're up to like five, five or six. Or six. Here. Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. Steve Gallo had had an important role. Then, then Pokemon. Did I miss somebody? Uh, I think we're at about like seven. I didn't write them all down though. <laughs> well, I mean, so. we had drummers that no, we had drummers that never played anything. Oh yeah, because uh, it probably like in two, listed in two songs guys for yeah, uh, yeah uh, it always does it. Uh, yeah. uh, Petey Hines, who went on to play with the Chromags after the Age of Quarrel. Okay. Uh, he played with us before. And we, we recorded just two songs with them, I think, during that compilation, Message to America. I'm pretty sure Peter recorded those songs. Okay. That was a favorite for Dave Jones, who helped out, helped me with with uh, Victim and Pain. I went to back to his studio and recorded a song for him for his for his compilation. Um, I'm trying to think what other drummer. Sorry, I did Well, no, no, we also had Robbie, Robbie Cribcraft, the original drummer. That was before me. <laughs> oh, okay. So there you go. This oh, you yeah, for you. And it blows my mind. I, yeah. I'm friends with Steve Martin. Okay, um, and it and a, you know obviously like this press for like U two and Radiohead right. and Paul McCartney. Now it's wild to me that he was in the band at one point too. Yeah, I mean guitar players. Oof. Is that uh, even oh, more than nine? Um, maybe not because Vinny's been con- well. Even there was a time where Vinny wasn't in the band, so yeah, <laughs> maybe as much. I think there's a uh, Chris, Chris who was doing like an like a thirty like one of those cost for alarm era, but he actually has. The the members in Agnostic, I think it's around thirty five members close together with everybody. Wow. I'm the fourth singer, and I'm the fir- I'm the first one on anything. <laughs> so just think about it. It's crazy. That part in the book is so funny when that guy is saying he's a singer Agnostic Front trying to pick yeah. up girls. That's so good. <laughs> that was I, my, I, my wife could have came home and killed me. <laughs> she she's like, what do you mean you married Roger? I'm married. Roger. Who's Roger? <laughs> Who are you talking about? <laughs> you know? I think that's an, funny, right? Yeah, that's very funny. And one of my favorite things from the book is when you talk about, you know, you got to hear a lot of music because it was being created. You know what I mean? Yeah. Punk, hip-hop, hardcore, like all of that. Is when you first heard Rocket to Russia, it made you want to throw rocks through windows. And I was like, what, what are the perfect review of that record yeah right <laughs> really seriously i was just like <laughs> such a great record. i mean punk rock man when i first discovered punk rock it was it's everything i ever wanted honestly i was i was a trapped child i was trapped i was uh like i said my life was an emotional mess i didn't have any friends i couldn't make any friends and i didn't want friends it was hard enough to, for me already 
to be friendly because I was a very introverted type. I mean, this music has helped me come out of my shell, you know, and a lot of people that know me know that I'm still a very calm, more quiet, reserved person. That's who I am. I mean, who is the the life of agnostic fun? I say Vinny Stigma. Everybody loves <laughs> Vinny Stigma. Vinny Stigma is, is, is my Eddie from Iron Maiden, you know? <laughs> but Vinny Stigma is the life of agnostic fun. He really is. I mean, mm. it's it's he brings a, something special. People love him. It's true. And I think people have always been a little bit more cautious with me. And it's because, I guess, my, my personality, who how, how I am, I guess. And it's not intentional. It's just that I've always been more reserved. And I've always, I've been an introverted kid my whole life. And then, and and are shy of things and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I meet these people. And I meet punk rock. And I'm like, whoa, life just began. It really just began. Mm. And it didn't begin Till I was 13 years old. Isn't that weird? 13, 13, I lived 13 years of, I don't know what was going on. <laughs> Might as well have been an infant, you know, till I was 13. So cool. What was, um, can you talk, I loved how you kind of talked about rabies in the book. And I'm big, you know, I saw Warzone once, but not today. I mean, what was it like kind of revisiting that and kind of your friendship with him? Oh, man, rabies, it, I mean, it was emotional because there's a lot of things that rabies bought to me from the very beginning. I mean, he asked me to join the band. You know, till unfortunately when he passed and he was supposed to sing, I don't know if it's in the book, when he was supposed to come and sing um, The Blame, which is a song we used to always sing together. And unfortunately he passed and I asked Jimmy G to come and sing the song, which we did. And I still felt incomplete. This is for something's got to give. I felt incomplete. I knew and Rabies was already, he had passed a month ago. And I'm like, man, even though Jimmy did this song with me, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And it was great. It came out great. But it, I, I, that miss, I was still missing rabies, you know. And then I went home and then I woke up the next day and, and, and it came to me. And, and I would like to say that he's, he's been like a garden angel because all of a sudden I'm like, boom, something came to me. I went back, right back in the studio. I said, just record me. And then I had everybody else come and follow from the East Coast to the West Coast, all that whole thing. That's all tributes to Ray. And then True Sounds of Revolution, true, all tribute to Ray's. And it came from me from Ray. It was like my guardian angel. If it wasn't for those little things to add to that song that was fully recorded, fully done, we used to play it live without any of that. Without any intro or outro, that song ended up being our, one of our biggest songs ever. Hmm. And it came from Ray, those, those parts, you know, besides that Jimmy Coletti had was the right guy who wrote the song with his other band but rabies added that he put the icing on the cake from heaven you know so rabies has always been a really personal close friend of mine he's the only person i ever did that cut thing blood brother thing with you know <laughs> which is funny when i think about it i still have a single back then we did it we had when you and i blood came out you know how you didn't have, you have your labels was blank. There was the blank side labels that were messed up. It was offset and into almost it, at the end of the matrix where it, it the record plays, but it just ends abrupt uh. at the end, which is perfect. So we dedicated our one to each other, and I still have the one he dedicated to me. Cool. And I dedicate one time. I went. I don't wonder what that is. You know, that's how close we were. Even when he wasn't in the band, he helped packaged the records he helped do th stuff and i was the one that got him to sing you know even when we he had to go from the band for whatever reason it was i helped him with his first band verbal assault i played bass i helped him get out of the drum thing where i was telling him, man 
you shouldn't be drumming, you should be singing. And I was right. I really was right. And, and then finally he had his voice with Warzone. I wish someone told me that. You, you should, should be you a front man. Yeah. You Jesus should be a front Christ. man. It's too Tell late you right now, now, man. Jeez. You can do it. You can do it now. I'm too old. Just stop it. No such thing as too old. <laughs> yeah, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> that or I'm fit for abuse. <laughs> I mean, I had, do you know anyone who's visited Cuba kind of recently? We tried, you know, we really? were in, in our film, um, The Godfather's of Hardcore, we were supposed to go back to Cuba and play a show. We have been, friends of mine in Cuba that actually, Arabio, they came from Cuba. I got them a show here at the Black and Blue Bowl about four or five years ago. Nobody even bothered Nobody cared, which is a shame. A Cuban hardcore band. It's crazy. From Cuba yeah. came to the United States and played the Black and Blue Bowl. Does anybody remember? No. no. Judge I think was a, Judge was the headliner, I think. And that was all Judge, Judge, Judge. Fair enough. This Judge. But here's a band coming from, you know, like, imagine that. And they all went back. You know, it's crazy. I've been friends with them. And we were supposed to go to Cuba and play a show. We were excited, and we booked it. We booked our flights. There was a venue, and right till we, we were supposed to fly Sunday, right till on Friday, we were supposed to get our visas, and they denied my visa, my mother's visa, my brother's visa. We were going to go shoot the film where I lived. My mom was going to show oh, me everything, wow. yeah, yeah. and they denied our visas. Any reason? or Well, apparently... Um, anybody that left Cuba prior to 1971 is not allowed to go back. There's anti-Castro. Oh, and shit. you know how everybody's talking about, oh, yeah, come to Cuba. It's open. It ain't open. First huh. of all, we had every, we had the right to go because they said, well, if, you, um, if you're doing a film, blah, 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 we did everything the right way. We went to the Cuban consulate in D.C. We did everything the right way. I sat down with a, me and my brother, Rudy. We sat down with a woman at the Cuban consulate. Oh, there's going to be no problem. Don't worry about it. We're going to make it. I'm sure as hell. And we lost. We lost. We, at that point, I was like, we're not going to go. We don't have you. We don't have... The film crew, the guy from the, that was flying from England, I think he actually, he ended up going from England to his connection and he just went back, one uh-huh. of the film guys. Well, I just go back to letting Roger and his mom. Have you uh, investigated doing it again since the, the laws well, it, have gotten it, loosened? I would, maybe it'll get better, but I don't think it's still that easy because right. we had to go through American Airlines and they, it's really weird and you have to go to this other office at the airport. And it's, you know, we just lost a lot of money, too. Nobody was sure. funded our flights and nothing oh, like that. Wow. That's yeah, a lot yeah. of money. Gone. And that wasn't even the point. We were gonna, I, was, I, was, I wanted to go out there playing a free show in Havana. It was amazing. You yeah. Know? The whole thing was... And it was so important to me to go back to the country I came yeah. from. And apparently they love Agnostic Front. They know my history. They know all this stuff. And, and there's no politics involved with us when it comes to... I never picked a side when it comes to their life yeah you know they seem to be living it is what it is you know but it was very it was very it, it hurt you know it hurt yeah. we we were so ready to do it my i mean my mom and me and my brother you know it would have been magical it's it would have shame. been completely magical to see my home again i know what my house looks like if i'm standing in front of it i could tell you that's it but i don't know where it is right uh. But my earliest memory from Cuba is my home. I what, know it. What made you want to do the film? I remember seeing like a screening of like 
There's American Hardcore, and there's Salad Days, and there's this, the Bad Brains one. And well, we started this. We originally went to start this film, believe it or not, in 1994. Well, oh, no, 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 in 2004. I'm sorry. Okay. We began this Ian thing, and then we recorded a, a part for the film and a live show at CBGBs. It was so intense that we actually released it. The live at CBGB's album number three, our third live at CBGB's album, <laughs> and the video. It's a live at CBGB's video at CBGB's. It was insane. That was part of the beginning of the journey of making the film, but it was so good that we were like, man, let's just release this right now. <laughs> and it slowed everything down. And then the same thing, he got busy, we got busy, he got busy, we got busy, and we started doing it again. And it, 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 it think about also, Ian had to change the whole ending of the whole film. It had to change the whole thing because of the Cuba thing. That was the grand finale. Right, the grand finale right, was just, right. the carpet just got pulled out of us. Yeah. Like, now where is the grand finale? You know, imagine that a, 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 per, a guy leave. That's a story of himself. This guy leaves Cuba, comes to America, goes back to playing Cuba. That's a story. Looks you know, like you got to make another film, I think. Well, I guess so. First, I got to let me in. Story. story. <laughs> you know? I can't could, make it without the film. Yeah. Sneaking in. That's a film. In <laughs> well, you see, they, 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 they mentioned that. And and I, and and I was like, "There's no way I'm going to even attempt that with my mother." Dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah. First of all, she left under certain things. Imagine that they could, you know, a political prison, a political prison. Yeah. And they, you know, I'm like, "There's no way you can. I'm not going to sneak in." They go like, oh, go through here, go through here, and you say this and no, 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 no. If I can't go the right way, because we left, you get yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. This is you, now joke. you're a political prisoner of yeah, some sort. Yeah. You know, and fuck around with that. No, not with my mom. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not getting my mom involved with it. My mom's sixty, what, sixty five, sixty six, whatever. I'm like, you kidding me? Can ever take that chance? Yeah. No. It's wise. Well, maybe Trump will open it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll hold my breath for yeah. that. One. Floodgates are opening right yeah. now. As yeah. we speak. I mean, uh, that's probably the best thing to put your faith into. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I know you guys had that song about Giuliani. Oh um, God, yeah. <laughs> and he kind of made a comeback in the last couple of years. He's been the public. I mean, what do you still uh, do? You still kind of stand by like all that stuff? Well, you know, I don't know. I've been, you know, Giuliani to me destroyed the city, like destroyed that, um, you know, that that what we were talking about, you know, earlier. taxi driver thing. Sure, you know? right. He made it safe for everything. Oh, Brad yeah. just bolted out. Brad loves yeah. to go off on this topic, living oh. in New York as long as he has. Yeah. It's great. Well, you know, Brad's the thing, the thing is, you know, a lot of people do like Giuliani, I guess, and, and the best thing that ever happened to Giuliani, can I say is the best thing that ever happened, probably the worst thing that ever happened in New York history was what happened to World Trade Center. Mm. He was at his bottom low. He cheated on his wife. He had cancer in his nuts. Everything. On his way out. That yeah. happens, and he became a hero. Uh, you know what I mean? But it, it's sad all that had happened. Well, anyway, I, I, I'm not a fan. And I was kind of hoping he would run for president because I had the song for the other guy. Uh, you're right. Giuliani. <laughs> Giuliani, you know the song? Yeah. Police State. <laughs> I'm like, I got the song for you. <laughs> you're Here's right, your campaign right. against song. Oh, man, that would be amazing to hear at the <laughs> yeah, convention. Yeah, yeah. yeah imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't happen. Quick reminder, our Patreon account is up and active. You can go check it out at patreon.com slash going off track and also via our website. All right. Thank you so much to Roger Murray for coming by. Um, 
you can check out his book, My Riot, Agnostic Front, Great Guts and Glory. It is available now on Amazon, bookstores, Barnes & Noble. It came out in August. It's really great. If you haven't checked out Agnostic Front, what is wrong with you? AF, man. Yeah. just want to thank Vinny Stigma, too, while I'm here, just yes. because I think that that's... We gotta do a podcast. To do. With, we gotta do a podcast. Oh with <laughs> I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'll, get a, I'll get like him and Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy. That, that would be incredible. Uh, but yeah, if you if you <laughs> seriously combination. If you, if, seriously if you've never listened to uh, Victim in Pain, you got to uh, you got to check it out. It's yeah, it's legendary. It's like up there, like Age of Coral, Start Today. It, uh, you know, it's the canon of New York hardcore. Yes, indeed. Um, if you want to support this podcast um, and you enjoyed this episode, uh, you want to help us out with our server costs, you can go to Venmo.com slash off track. Um, that'll go to Brad. Um, he'll he'll share it with us, hopefully. You can also go to PayPal.com and donate via our website, goingofftrack.com, or you can go on iTunes and leave us a nice comment and review for free. Or you can go to Fine Fair, hang out by the bear <laughs> aisle, and just wait for Brad to come in. <laughs> And buy him uh, Dale's Pale Ale. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, and anything or else? Buy Jonah a beer when, when he's out because he's out. Yeah, know? I'm not out. Not like me. I'm out. I'm not out enough. I'm out sometimes. Yeah, you can buy me beer. That's cool. It's 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 happened a handful of times. One time I was in, I uh, can't remember where I was. I think it was on the West Coast. I was on Tours Pianos Become the Teeth, and some guy was like, I like your podcast, and you just gave me a dollar. <laughs> and I was like, this is like weird. Like I took it, but it, it felt, it felt sort of dirty. Like, I don't know how to explain it. I was like, $1 bill. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. But it was a nice gesture. I guess. It was just strange. I was it's like, like you, if you under tip a cab driver, it's more effective than like no tip at all. You know, like you give a cab driver like, like 32 cents and like that is actually a bigger disc than if you don't tip. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like, so oh, like if, if five more people give me this, I can buy a beer. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it is paper money, but also it's the lowest paper money you could hand somebody. Yeah. But thank you, dude. But yeah, you thank you. This was a couple <laughs> years ago. But it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's the intent. Yeah, you're right. So shouldn't dismiss it. It's cool. Shouldn't dismiss it. But it was weird. I mean, it was, it was a, yeah. And not to say that if every single listener... Decided to donate one dollar per episode, which is you know if you think about it, it's what it costs to buy. It's less than what you pay for like a song, right? If they were to do that, then we would be set. Yeah, and We'd this let's happy. face it, this podcast is better than any song. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, a song is like what, like four minutes long? It's like an hour. <laughs> you got like let Roger Moran here. Yeah, come on. I mean. Much better vocals. Yes. Much better audio quality. Yeah, the audio quality is off the chain. Yes. So, yeah, thanks to Roger. Buy his book. Seriously, it's a really, really incredible accomplishment. You should definitely read it. Um, Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.